Sunday morning, May 7th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, Father and I had a long talk yesterday afternoon. I cried my eyes out, and he cried too. Do you know what he said to me, Kitty? I've received many letters in my lifetime, but none as hurtful as this. You, who have had so much love from your parents, you, whose parents have always been ready to help you, who have always defended you, no matter what. You talk of not having to account to us for your actions. You feel you've been wronged and left to your own devices. No, Anne, you've done us a great injustice. Perhaps you didn't mean it that way, but that's what you wrote. No, Anne, we have done nothing to deserve such a reproach. Oh, I've failed miserably. This is the worst thing I've ever done in my entire life. I used my tears to show off, to make myself seem important so he'd respect me. I've certainly had my share of unhappiness, and everything I said about mother is true. But to accuse Pim, who's so good and who's done everything for me, no, that was too cruel for words. It's good that somebody has finally cut me down to size, has broken my pride because I've been far too smug. Not everything Mistress Anne does is good. Anyone who deliberately causes such pain to someone they say they love is despicable, the lowest of the low. What I'm most ashamed of is the way Father has forgiven me. He said he's going to throw the letter in the stove, and he's being so nice to me now, as if he were the one who'd done something wrong. Well, Anne, you still have a lot to learn. It's time you made a beginning instead of looking down at others and always giving them the blame. I've known a lot of sorrow, but who hasn't at my age? I've been putting on an act, but was hardly even aware of it. I felt lonely, but never desperate. Not like father, who once ran out into the street like a knife so he could put an end to it all. I've never gone that far. I should be deeply ashamed of myself, and I am. What's done can't be undone, but at least you can keep it from happening again. I'd like to start all over, and that shouldn't be difficult. Now that I have Peter, with him supporting me, I know I can do it. I'm not alone anymore. He loves me. I love him. I have my books, my writing, and my diary. I'm not all that ugly. All that stupid. I have a sunny disposition, and I want to develop a good character. Yes, Anne, you knew full well that your letter was unkind and untrue, but you were actually proud of it. I'll take father as my example once again, and I will improve myself. Yours and Frank. Monday, eighth of May, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, have I ever told you anything about my family? I don't think I have. So let me begin. Father was born in Frankfurt and Maine to very wealthy parents. Michael Frank owned a bank and became a millionaire. And Alice Stern's parents were prominent and well-to-do. Michael Frank didn't start out rich; he was a self-made man. In his youth, father led the life of a rich man's son: parties every week, balls, banquets, beautiful girls, waltzing, dinners, a huge house, etc. After Grandpa died, most of the money was lost. And after the Great War and inflation, there was nothing left at all. Up until the war, there were still quite a few rich relatives. So father was extremely well-bred, and he had to laugh yesterday because for the first time in his fifty-five years, he scraped out the frying pan at the table. Mother's family wasn't as wealthy, but still fairly well off. And we've listened open-mouthed to stories of private balls, dinners, and engagement parties with two hundred and fifty guests. We are far from rich now, but I've pinned all my hopes on after the war. I can assure you, 
am not so set on a bourgeois life as mother and Margaret. I'd like to spend a year in Paris and London learning the languages and studying art history. Compare that with Margaret, who wants to nurse newborns in Palestine. I still have visions of gorgeous dresses and fascinating people. As I've told you many times before, I want to see the world and do all kinds of exciting things, and a little money won't hurt. This morning, Meep told us about her cousin's engagement party, which she went to on Saturday. The cousin's parents are rich, and the grooms are even richer. Meep made our mouths water telling us about the food that was served: vegetable soup with meatballs, cheese rolls with sliced meat, hors d'oeuvres made with eggs and roast beef, rolls of cheese, genoise. Wine and cigarettes, and you could eat as much as you wanted. Meep drank ten schnapps and smoked three cigarettes. Could this be your temperance advocate? If Meep drank all those, I wonder how many her spouse managed to toss down. Everyone at the party was a little tipsy, of course. There were also two officers from the homicide squad who took photographs of the wedding couple. You can see we're never far from Meep's thoughts. Since she promptly noted their names and addresses in case anything should happen and we needed contacts with good touch people, our mouths were watering so much. We who had had nothing but two spoonfuls of hot cereal for breakfast and were absolutely famished, we who get nothing but half-cooked spinach and rotten potatoes day after day, we who fill our empty stomachs with nothing but boiled lettuce, raw lettuce, spinach, spinach, and more spinach. Maybe we'll end up being as strong as Popeye, though up to now I've seen no sign of it. If Meep had taken us along to the party, there wouldn't have been any rolls left over for the other guests. If we'd been there, we'd have snatched up everything in sight, including the furniture. I tell you, we were practically pulling the words right out of her mouth. We were gathered around her as if we'd never in all our lives heard of delicious food or elegant people. And these are the granddaughters of the distinguished millionaire. The world is a crazy place. Yours and Frank. Tuesday, May ninth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, I've finished my story about Alan the fairy. I've copied it out on nice note paper, decorated it with red ink, and sewn the pages together. The whole thing looks quite pretty, but I don't know if it's enough of a birthday present. Margaret and Mother have both written poems. Mr. Kugler came upstairs this afternoon with the news that starting Monday, Mrs. Brooks would like to spend two hours in the office every afternoon. Just imagine, the office staff won't be able to come upstairs. The potatoes can't be delivered. Bab won't get her dinner. We can't go to the bathroom. We won't be able to move, and all sorts of other inconveniences. We proposed a variety of ways to get rid of her. Mr. Van Dan thought a good laxative in her coffee might do the trick. No, Mr. Clayman answered. Please don't, or we'll never get her off the can. A roar of laughter. The can, Mrs. Fandy asked. What does that mean? An explanation was given. Is it all right to use that word? She asked in perfect innocence. Just imagine. Bab giggled. There you are shopping at the Baying Cove, and you ask the way to the can. They wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Do so now sits on the can to borrow the expression. Every day at twelve thirty on the dot. This afternoon, I boldly took a piece of pink paper and wrote Mr. Dussel's toilet timetable: mornings from seven fifteen to seven thirty a.m., afternoon after one p.m. Otherwise, only as needed. I tacked this to the green bathroom door while he was still inside. I might well have added transgressors will be subject to confinement because our bathroom can be locked from both the inside and the outside. 
Mr. Van Dan's latest joke. After a Bible lesson about Adam and Eve, a thirteen-year-old boy asked his father, "Tell me, father, how did I get born?" Well, the father replied, "The stork plucked you out of the ocean, set you down in mother's bed, and bit her in the leg hard. It bled so much she had to stay in bed for a week." Not fully satisfied, the boy went to his mother. "Tell me, mother," he asked, "how did you get born, and how did I get born?" His mother told him the very same story. Finally, hoping to hear the fine points, he went to his grandfather. "Tell me, grandfather," he said, "how did you get born, and how did your daughter get born?" And for the third time, he was told exactly the same story. That night, he wrote in his diary, "After careful inquiry." I must conclude that there has been no sexual intercourse in our family for the last three generations. I still have work to do. It's already three o'clock. Yours and Frank. P.S. Since I think I've mentioned the new cleaning lady, I just want to note that she's married, sixty years old, and hard of hearing. Very convenient in view of all the noise that eight people in hiding are capable of making. Oh, kid, it's such lovely weather. If only I could go outside. Wednesday, May tenth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, we were sitting in the attic yesterday afternoon working on our French when suddenly I heard the splatter of water behind me. I asked Peter what it might be. Without pausing to reply, he dashed up to the loft scene of the disaster and shoved Moshi, who was squatting beside her soggy litter box, back to the right place. This was followed by shouts and squeals, and then Moshi, who by that time had finished peeing, took off downstairs. In search of something similar to her box, Moshi had found herself a pile of wood shavings right over a crack in the floor. The puddle immediately trickled down to the attic and, as luck would have it, landed in and next to the potato barrel. The ceiling was dripping, and since the attic floor has also got its share of cracks, little yellow drops were leaking through the ceiling and onto the dining table, between a pile of stockings and books. I was doubled up with laughter. It was such a funny sight. There was Moshi crouched under the chair, Peter armed with water, powdered bleach in a cloth, and Mister Van Dan trying to calm everyone down. The room was soon set to rights. But it's a well-known fact that cat puddles stink to high heaven. The potatoes proved that all too well, as did the wood shavings, which Father collected in a bucket and brought downstairs to burn. Poor Moshi, how were you to know it's impossible to get peats for your box? And Thursday, May eleventh, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, a new sketch to make you laugh. Peter's hair had to be cut, and as usual, his mother was to be the hairdresser. At seven twenty-five, Peter vanished into his room and reappeared at the stroke of seven thirty, stripped down to his blue swimming trunks and a pair of tennis shoes. Are you coming? He asked his mother. Yes, I'll be up in a minute, but I can't find the scissors. Peter helped her look. Rummaging around in her cosmetic drawer, don't make such a mess, Peter," she grumbled. I didn't catch Peter's reply, but it must have been insolent because she cuffed him on the arm. He cuffed her back. She punched him with all her might, and Peter pulled his arm away with a look of mock horror on his face. "Come on, old girl," Mrs. Fandy stayed put. Peter grabbed her by the wrists and pulled her all around the room. She laughed, cried, scolded, and kicked, but nothing helped. Peter led his prisoner as far as the attic stairs, where he was obliged to let go of her. Mrs. Van D came back to the room and collapsed into a chair with a loud sigh. The abduction of mother, I joked. Yes, but he hurt me. I went to have a look and cooled her hot red wrists with water. 
Peter, still by the stairs and growing impatient again, strode into the room with his belt in his hand, like a lion tamer. Mrs. Fandy didn't move, but stayed by her writing desk, looking for a handkerchief. You've got to apologize first. All right, I hereby offer my apologies, but only because if I don't, we'll be here till midnight. Mrs. Fandy had to laugh in spite of herself. She got up and went toward the door, where she felt obliged to give us an explanation. He wasn't like this at home, she said. I've had belted him so hard he'd have gone flying down the stairs. He's never been so insolent. This isn't the first time he's deserved a good hiding. That's what you get with a modern upbringing, modern children. I'd never have grabbed my mother like that. Did you treat your mother that way, Mister Frank? She was very upset, pacing back and forth, saying whatever came into her head, and she still hadn't gone upstairs. Finally, at long last, she made her exit. Less than five minutes later, she stormed back down the stairs with her cheeks all puffed out and flung her apron on a chair. When I asked if she was true, she replied that she was going downstairs. She tore down the stairs like a tornado, probably straight into the arms of her putty. She didn't come up again until eight. This time with her husband, Peter was dragged from the attic, given a merciless scolding, and showered with abuse. Ill-mannered brat, no good bum, bad example. And this Margaret, that I couldn't hear the rest. Everything seems to have calmed down again today. Yours and Frank. P.S. Tuesday and Wednesday evening, our beloved Queen addressed the country. She's taking the vacation, so she'll be in good health for her return to the Netherlands. She used words like "soon" when I'm back in Holland, a swift liberation, heroism, and heavy burdens. This was followed by a speech by Prime Minister Gerbrandy. He has such a squeaky little child's voice that mother instinctively said, "Oh, a clergyman who must have borrowed his voice from Mister Adel." Concluded by asking God to take care of the Jews. All those in concentration camps and prisons, and everyone working in Germany. Thursday, May eleventh, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, since I've left my entire junk box, including my fountain pen, upstairs, and I'm not allowed to disturb the grown-ups during their nap time, you'll have to make do with a letter in pencil. I'm terribly busy at the moment, and strange as it may sound, I don't have enough time to get through my pile of work. Shall I tell you briefly what I've got to do? Well then, before tomorrow, I have to finish reading the first volume of a biography of Galileo Galilei, since it has to be returned to the library. I started reading it yesterday and have gotten up to page two hundred and twenty out of three hundred and twenty pages. So I'll manage it. Next week, I have to read Palestine at the crossroads and the second volume of Galilei. Besides that. I finished the first volume of a biography of Emperor Charles V yesterday, and I still have to work out the many genealogical charts I've collected and the notes I've taken. Next, I have three pages of foreign words from my various books, all of which have to be written down, memorized, and read out loud. Number four, my movie stars are in a terrible disarray and are dying to be straightened out. But since it will take several days to do that, and Professor Anne is. As she's already said, up to her ears in work, they'll have to put up with the chaos a while longer. Then there are Theseus, Oedipus, Peleus, Orpheus, Jason, and Hercules, all waiting to be untangled, since their various deeds are running crisscross through my mind like multicolored threads in a dress. Myron and Phidias are also urgently in need of attention, or else I'll forget entirely how they fit into the picture. 
The same applies, for example, to the Seven Years' War and the Nine Years' War. Now I'm getting everything all mixed up. Well, what can you do with a memory like mine? Just imagine how forgetful I'll be when I'm eighty. Oh, one more thing: the Bible. How long is it going to take before I come to the story of the bathing Susanna? And what do they mean by Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh, there's still so much to find out and learn. In the meantime, I've left Charlotte of the Palatine in the lurch. You can see, can't you, Kitty, that I'm full to bursting. And now something else. You've known for a long time that my greatest wish is to be a journalist and later on a famous writer. We'll have to wait and see if these grand illusions will ever come true. But up to now, I've had no lack of topics. In any case, after the war, I'd like to publish a book called *The Secret Annex*. It remains to be seen whether I'll succeed, but my diary can serve as the basis. I also need to finish Caddy's life. I've thought up the rest of the plot. After being cured in a sanatorium, Caddy goes back home and continues writing to Hans. It's 1941, and it doesn't take her long to discover Hans' Nazi sympathies. And since Caddy is deeply concerned with the plight of the Jews and of her friend Marianne, they begin drifting apart. They meet and get back together, but break up when Hans takes up with another girl. Caddy is shattered, and because she wants to have a good job, she studies nursing. After graduation, she accepts a position at the urging of her father's friends as a nurse in a TB sanatorium in Switzerland. During her first vacation, she goes to Lake Como, where she runs into Hans. He tells her that two years earlier he'd married Caddy's successor, but that his wife took her life in a fit of depression. Now that he's seen his little Caddy again, he realizes how much he loves her, and once more asks her for her hand in marriage. Caddy refuses, even though, in spite of herself, she loves him as much as ever. But her pride holds her back. Hans goes away, and years later, Caddy learns that he's wound up in England, where he's struggling with ill health. When she's twenty-seven, Caddy marries a well-to-do man from a country named Simon. She grows to love him, but not as much as Hans. She has two daughters and a son, Lathan, Judith, and Nicol. She and Simon are happy together, but Hans is always in the back of her mind until one night she dreams of him and says farewell. It's not sentimental nonsense. It's based on a story of father's life. Yours and Frank. Saturday, May thirteenth, nineteen forty-four. My dearest Kitty. Yesterday was father's birthday, father and mother's nineteenth wedding anniversary, a day without the cleaning lady, and the sun was shining as it's never shone before in 1944. Our chestnut tree is in full bloom; it's covered with leaves and is even more beautiful than last year. Father received a biography of Linnaeus from Mr. Clayman, a book on nature from Mr. Kubler, the canals of Amsterdam from Dusso, a huge box from the Van Dans. Containing three eggs, a bottle of beer, a jar of yogurt, and a green tie. It made our jar of molasses seem rather paltry. My roses smelled wonderful compared to meeting Bev's red carnations. He was thoroughly spoiled. Fifty petite four arrived from Simmons Bakery. Delicious. Father also treated us to spice cake, the men to beer, and the ladies to yogurt. Everything was scrumptious. Yours and Frank. Tuesday, May sixteenth, nineteen forty-four. My dearest Kitty, just for a change, I'll recount a little discussion between Mister and Missus Van D last night. Missus Van D, the Germans have had plenty of time to fortify the Atlantic Wall, and they'll certainly do everything within their power to hold back the British. 
It's amazing how strong the Germans are. Mr. Van D. Oh, yes, amazing. Mrs. Van D. It is. Mr. Van D. They are so strong they are bound to win the war in the end. Is that what you mean? Mrs. Van D. They might. I'm not convinced that they won't. Mr. Van D. I won't even answer that. Mrs. Van D. You always wind up answering. You let yourself get carried away every single time. Mr. Van D. No, I don't. I always keep my answers to the bare minimum. Mrs. Van D. But you always do have an answer and you always have to be right. Your predictions hardly ever come true, you know. Mr. Van D. So far they have. Mrs. Van D. No, they haven't. You said the invasion was going to start last year. The Finns were supposed to have been out of the war by now. The Italian campaign ought to have been over by last winter. And the Russians should already have captured Lemberg. Oh no, I don't set much store by your predictions. Mr. Van D. Why don't you shut your trap for a change? I'll show you who's right. Someday you'll get tired of needling me. I can't stand you bellyaching a minute longer. Just wait. One day I'll make you eat your words. Actually, I couldn't help giggling. Mother couldn't either, and even Peter was biting his lips to keep from laughing. Oh, those stupid grown-ups! They need to learn a few things first before they start making so many remarks about the younger generation. Since Friday, we've been keeping the windows open again at night. Yours and Frank. What our annex family is interested in? Mister Van Dan, no courses. Looks up many things in Norse encyclopedia and lexicon. Likes to read detective stories, medical books, and love stories, exciting or trivial. Mrs. Van Dan, a correspondence course in English. Likes to read biographical novels and occasionally other kinds of novels. Mr. Frank is learning English and a bit of Latin. Never reads novels, but likes serious, rather dry descriptions of people and places. Mrs. Frank. A correspondence course in English reads everything except detective stories. Mister Dusso is learning English, Spanish, and Dutch with no noticeable results. Reads everything, goes along with the opinion of the majority. Peter Van Dan is learning English, French, shorthand in Dutch, English, and German. Commercial correspondence in English, woodworking, economics, and sometimes math. Seldom reads, sometimes geography. Margaret Frank. Correspondence courses in English, French, and Latin. Shorthand in English, German, and Dutch. Trigonometry, solid geometry, mechanics, physics, chemistry, algebra, geometry, English literature, French literature, German literature, Dutch literature, bookkeeping, geography, modern history, biography, economics. Reads everything, preferably on religion and medicine. And Frank. Shorthand in French, English, German, and Dutch. Geometry, algebra, history, geography. Art history, mythology, biology, Bible history, Dutch literature. Likes to read biographies, dull, exciting, and history books. Leave someone in the lurch. Phrase. Leave someone abruptly and without assistance or support when they are in a difficult situation. Molasses. Molasses. Now, thick dark brown juice obtained from raw sugar during the refining process. Poultry, poultry, adjective, of an amount very small or meager.